congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are still in the, in the throes, so to speak, of um, Easter. And so uh, I want to present to you a message that deals with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And particularly as we want to consider what we have read here in this passage of the, of the cloths. It may seem like a, a strange thing to speak about, but I hope that will become clear soon. Now, someone once described the tomb or the sepulcher of the Lord Jesus Christ as the not-quite-empty tomb. The not-quite-empty tomb. And you might ask, well, why? If Christ is, is not in the tomb, it is empty. Not quite. There is something there that is very telling. And what are they? Those cloths. Those cloths that are, were to be seen there. Now, it may seem like rather unimportant that we would want to consider that as a part of the message for this hour. But I want to point out to you this that the Holy Spirit has found it very important that these matters also be dealt with and that we are instructed about what these cloths are all about. In fact, we are told that the Holy Spirit repeats this not less twice, but three times something about those cloths. And I want to point that to you first of all. It is mentioned already in verse 5. John stooping down, looking into the tomb, saw the linen cloths lying there. Then we go on to verse 6. Simon Peter, going into the tomb, again, the Holy Spirit repeats it, saw the linen cloths lying there. And then we go on, on into verse 7. There it is mentioned again for the third time. And the handkerchief or the, the, the napkin that had been around his head, that is around Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. With this, dear people, the Holy Spirit wants to tell us that those cloths have something to tell us. And that the place where they were and how they were folded are of great significance. How so, you might ask? Well, as proof of an awesome resurrection, that is a type of resurrection that we may not have thought about as a bodily resurrection. And so let us explore that in a little bit more detail. And so as theme for this hour... A proof of the resurrection in the folded linen cloths. Proof contested in the first place. Proof confirmed in the second place. And then proof caught in the third place. Now, congregation, first of all, the devil is no doubt behind contesting the resurrection and the proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He continues to contest that. If he can, he will confuse the matter, sow doubt in the hearts and minds of people about the resurrection and spread a lie that the resurrection has really never happened. And he has been very successful in doing this as well. The lie 
that the disciples have stolen the body of Jesus Christ very quickly spread, and it was believed by the Jews. And so we are told already in Matthew 20, uh, 26, uh, or no, 28, verse 15, this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day, that the disciples stole the body of Jesus. But it was not only the guards who spread this lie. I dare say that even a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is, Mary Magdalene, was involved in spreading this lie. Now, she did not do it intentionally because her intentions were good. After all, we are told that um, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early uh, while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. Mary Magdalene, therefore, had, uh, had the good and noble intention of, of showing her deep love for her master, Jesus Christ, her Savior, by, by going there very early and embalming the body as a final token for her, her great love for him. She did not mean to become a tool, an instrument in the hand of the devil to contest the resurrection. But she did. She did. Because we read as follows, and you can read of that in verse 2, she saw that the, tomb, that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, and here you have it, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Inadvertently, Mary Magdalene planted seeds of doubt and confusion in the minds of others that the body of the Lord was taken out of the tomb, if not, in fact, stolen from the tomb. Mary Magdalene, you see, she came to a too hasty a conclusion. Without sufficient investigation, she became, therefore, a tool in the hand of the devil in contesting the resurrection and in spreading a lie. You know, the devil, he is such a nasty, downright despicable character, isn't he? He will even use a tender-hearted, well-intentioned, God-fearing person like Mary Magdalene for his evil purpose if he can. Now, there's a small lesson in here for us. We too, we must be very careful. We must be on our guard that the devil will not use us in any way. Though we are not intending to be a tool in the hand of the devil, nevertheless, maybe. When you think about speaking about a certain matter, which is of great importance, particularly as it pertains to the word of God, or as it pertains to congregational life. Let us not draw a conclusion too hastily. Let us be very careful. Let us be careful to investigate the whole matter first, and then if you do find it necessary to speak, then do so. Perhaps after very careful investigation of the whole matter, whatever it might be, you may find that it is far more prudent to just keep silent. 
You see, it had been much better for Mary Magdalene if she had just stopped to look and to investigate why the stone was taken away from the tomb. She would then have been pleasantly surprised and had been able to spread a wonderful truth. But she drew too fast a conclusion and was instrumental in contesting the resurrection. But now, there's more that you and I should know about contesting the resurrection. The devil is still very hard at work in doing so also in your and my time today, especially in the courts of higher education. High schools, especially secular high schools, universities, colleges, universities, so on. The devil is still very hard at work in contesting the resurrection. Let me just give you an example that I came across not too long ago. That is, not long ago at the California Polytechnic University, two prominent philosophers held a public dialogue centered on the question, and this is the question that they discussed, did the resurrection of Jesus really happen? One of the philosophers, obviously an atheist, stated the following, and I'm going to quote him word by word. The idea of a dead man returning to life does not fit anything we know about reality. I suppose I have an almost invincible disinclination to believe the whole resurrection story because it seems to me so wildly inconsistent with everything else that happens in the universe. So far, that quote. and I'll, I'll quote him again in a moment. So this idea, dear people, is widespread in our secular society today. A dead man doesn't come back to life. Impossible. And this is how the world thinks. This is how, how the unchurched, the unbelieving man and woman thinks. And let me repeat this again, what this philosopher has said. Just listen for a moment what more he has to say. I quote, Our experience with death is that it is final. We know no exception to that rule. Our science does not have a place for the reversal of death in a body that has been dead for more than 48 hours. In the case of Jesus' resurrection, isn't it more likely that we are dealing with a fictional story concocted 2,000 years ago? Why should we give it any credibility at all? For that matter, how can anyone embrace the idea that a resurrection really happened? Has any thoughtful person been able to do that without completely surrendering their reasons? To do so would require the event to be placed in a category of its own. What grounds have intelligent people found to warrant a belief in the resurrection of Jesus? This is what is being taught to our younger generations in secular high schools, in colleges, and universities. 
I know of this by experience. I've also sat in university classes hearing this kind of nonsense. And that's what it is, nonsense. So the spin-off of all is that intelligent reason, so they say, <clears throat> is that man lives and that man dies and that's it. That is what is being taught. No resurrection, therefore, whatsoever. What a shock this will be for anyone who has reason like this when he or she comes to die. Because the Bible teaches very clearly it is appointed for men to die once, but after that, the judgment. And therefore, contesting the resurrection is extremely dangerous, dear people. It is the devil's trap. Let us therefore be aware of it. For a while, Mary Magdalene was not aware of it, and without realizing it, she therefore was instrumental in contesting the proof of the resurrection. But thankfully, thankfully, there is something that is far more optimistic for us to read in our text passage. And that is why we want to go on. It leads me to my second point then, proof confirmed. And so we read then in the verses 3 and 4 of our text passage that Peter and the other disciple, who by the way happens to be John, having heard Mary Magdalene's take on what happened at the tomb, did not just take her word for it, but decided that they would investigate it themselves. And now, this is always a good practice, isn't it? Also in terms of religious and spiritual hearsay. What you hear, also from this pulpit, from a person like me, or from another pastor, what you hear from this pulpit, make it a point of investigating it for yourself, That is, go back to the very word of God to see if this is true. Proof of that is to be found in Acts 17, verse 10 and 11. We read of the men of Berea, who were, so we are told, who were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. And so discussions about the word of God should follow after we leave the church. And it is, of course, done in prayer and for the upbuilding of God's kingdom, but also for the comfort and encouragement of each one of us who has heard the message of the gospel. Now, Peter and John, they were not just to uh, believe what Mary Magdalene has to say, but they began to search it out for themselves. And they did so without hesitation. Without holding back, because we are told that they ran for it even. They ran for it. John, just a little bit faster than Peter, because so Bible scholars tell me that John was much younger than Peter. Peter was the old man, couldn't run as fast anymore. And this takes us now to the central message of our text. They saw the linen cloths. Now, what's so important about those linen cloths, you might ask? Several things. But all of them are confirming proofs of the resurrection. 
These linen cloths, you see, they make a good case that the body was not taken away from the tomb and laid somewhere else, as Mary Magdalene surmised. Because if this had been the case, they would have taken the body fully wrapped in the linen cloths. And they would not have been left in the tomb. They also make a good case for that the body was not stolen. If thieves would have wanted to steal the body, they would not have gone through the tedious task of unwrapping the body, folding these cloths and laying them aside. They would have very quickly taken the body, all of it wrapped up and ran with it. Therefore, John and Peter, they could easily conclude that the body was not laid somewhere and also that the body was not stolen either. But there's yet a greater confirmation and a greater confirming proof as well. Because now we have to read our text very, very carefully and explore exactly what it means. And it's this way. John and Peter saw the linen cloths lying there. And more particularly, as you can read in verse 7, and the, uh, the napkin or the handkerchief that had been around Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together or wrapped in place by itself. Now, this detail is very important. It is helpful at this point to know something about the Jewish practice of preparing a body for burial. Such a body would then be wrapped in linen bands of cloth that enclosed dried spices. And as to the body of the Lord, 100 pounds of spices were carefully inserted into the folds of the linen cloths. And among them were aloes and aromatic wood powdered into fine sawdust and myrrh, a fragrant kind of gum that would be carefully mixed with the powder. And in this matter, the whole body of the Lord was, as it were, encased. And I I want to stress that, encased the body of Christ in that linen. And you can see that in John chapter 19, verse 39. But now, his head and neck and shoulders would be left bare, and a linen cloth, a sweatband, as it may be called, which in our text is called a a napkin or a handkerchief, would be wrapped about the upper part of the head, of the one who had passed away, would have been folded together, as our text literally says it in the original, would have been twisted together, twisted together, like you would fold or twist a turban. And that is probably the best way to, uh, to translate this cloth around the head of the Lord Jesus, a twisted turban. It is in this matter that the whole body of the Lord was placed in a tomb. But now, what did John and Peter see? They saw the linen cloths lying together, 
In other words, lying there the way they were shaped around the body of the Lord Jesus. They saw those linen cloths lying there undisturbed. And they saw the linen cloth, that is the turban, the sweatband or turban, folded, wrapped around in a place by itself as well. To be more precise, according to the original language, they saw this turban still twisted into a turban and still in a circular shape, lying head and shoulders distance from the rest of those linen cloths. What did John and Peter see? They saw that the cloths and the turban They saw it all undisturbed, as if the body of the Lord was completely exhumed from it, taken out of it, and no longer there, absent. What does that mean? It means that when the Lord Jesus came back to life, he came to life in a glorious body, that passed undisturbed through the linen cloths, passed through the tomb as well, just as he would later on pass through the closed doors to meet with his disciples, as you can read of in John 20, verse 27. Now, let's just imagine for a moment a conversation between John and Peter as they stand there in the empty tomb and in conversation started by John. Don't you see, Peter? No one has moved this body. No one has disturbed those grave cloths. They are lying exactly in the same way as Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea have left them on the eve of the Sabbath. Yet the body is gone. It has not been stolen. It has not been moved. Clearly, the body must have passed through those cloths leaving them as we see them lying here now. Therefore, Jesus must have risen and risen into a glorious body. One Bible um, commentator says this way, a glance at these grave cloths proved the reality and indicate the nature of the resurrection. And dear people, this is really the proof That is confirmed for you and for me as well. The grave cloths and how they were lying there in the empty tomb confirmed the resurrection. And it was a resurrection not in just an ordinary body, but a resurrection into a glorious body. What does that confirm? It confirms for you and for me that the Lord Jesus Christ guarantees the resurrection of your and my body at the same time when we pass away as believers in Jesus Christ. We will then receive from him a glorious body when he returns upon the clouds, a glorious body. Isn't this what the Apostle Paul also tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15? But now Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterwards those who are Christ at his coming. 
we too will receive then a glorified body. Not only that, but it also tells at the same time what sort of resurrection it will be for you and for me. It will be like Christ's resurrection, you see, into a glorious body. And it is beyond our understanding of what that means at this moment. These undisturbed linen cloths are therefore proof confirmed of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, John and Peter, they they saw this, and we know at least this much, that John believed, he understood, because we are told yet the other disciple, that is John, who came to the tomb first, went in also, he saw, and he believed. Verse 8. Now, this takes me to my third and my final point, speaking of the proof of the resurrection in the folded linen cloths, proof caught. Now, we do not know precisely if Simon Peter caught it, but John did. We are told that when he saw, he believed. Why not Simon Peter? Well, we're not told, but... Perhaps Simon Peter had to deal with some issues yet. Repenting issues. Confessing issues. Remember how Simon Peter had sinned? Three days before, at Jesus' trial, Simon Peter committed an awful sin. When push came to shove, he denied Jesus and publicly declared not just once, but three times that he did not know the man, that is, Jesus Christ. And perhaps this is why, standing in the empty tomb and seeing those linen cloths, the way they were lying there, he could not yet catch the proof of the resurrection. He could not yet believe as he should have believed. Why not? Because there were still sins that needed to be confessed. You see, God's people can have a hard time exercising their faith when they are walking around with unconfessed sins. And that is one of the lessons we need to learn as well. Believing can actually become downright difficult when you are not at peace with God and at peace with the situation that has developed. I suspect, therefore, that was also the case here with Simon Peter. And that, I believe, is a small lesson for us, for you and me as well, isn't it? Let us always be ready to confess even the least sins we commit and confess them to the Lord immediately, immediately. Let us never leave any sin that we have committed unmentioned in our prayers. Because if we do... If we do, we will have difficulties believing, even believing the most obvious proofs of the Lord's powers. People who walk around with unconfessed sins harm their faith life and sometimes even their physical well-being as well. Proof? All you need to do is look at Psalm 32 and what David confesses, when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. But before 
his confession, he was going through a terrible time till he confessed. Well, what could not be said of Simon Peter could be said of John. He saw and he believed. In other words, he caught the proof. He saw the linen cloths undisturbed, folded, and in their right place. And he instantly knew and he believed that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead and now has a glorified body. The proof of the resurrection was therefore in those undisturbed cloths and the turban. Dear people, it does not have to be necessary to see Jesus Christ physically for us in order to believe in him. We don't need to see him in order to believe in him. John believed while he stood there in the tomb. While he observed with care some of this proof of the resurrection, those undisturbed cloths. John had an eye for it and he caught the proof. For us today, though we cannot see Jesus Christ physically, the proof of him being alive is to be seen in his own word, the very word. Let us observe it carefully. Let us study it diligently. And I mentioned something of that yesterday too when we explored something in the book of Leviticus. But let us study the scriptures diligently and you will catch the proof. The Lord Jesus said it of himself. Search the scriptures. These are they which testify of me, so says Jesus. The two disciples who walked from Jerusalem back to Emmaus that first Easter Sunday, they too were caught by Jesus to look into the scriptures, you see. And beginning at Moses and at all the prophets, he, that is Jesus, he expounded to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. It is the Bible, it is the scriptures that give us the proof. And therefore, prayerfully look into the scriptures and catch that proof prayerfully. But I can go even further yet. For John, the proof was in those undisturbed cloths, some rather ordinary items. Ordinary items. And because he saw those ordinary items, he believed. Is there not enough around us that can also be labeled as rather ordinary, but which are also proof that Jesus Christ is alive presently? But are we paying enough attention to these ordinary matters? The fact that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is still in existence, despite centuries of persecution, which continues on unabated and continues to increase, in fact, is proof that Jesus Christ is alive. The fact that the gospel of conversion, of repentance and forgiveness continues to be proclaimed across the world is proof that Jesus Christ is still is alive. The fact that for some 2,000 years we still annually celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ is proof, dear people, that he is still alive. More yet, 
The fact that the seasons changing from winter into springtime is proof that Jesus Christ is alive. The fact that there's new growth beginning to show up in your gardens is proof that Jesus Christ is alive. More proof. It is all around us, dear people. Do we have eyes to see this? Are we observing it? Are we seeing it? Are we speaking to each other about it? Because Making those connections will cause us to grow in our faith in Jesus Christ. Dear people, the gospel of the resurrection is therefore provides us, providing us with plenty of proofs. Even some folded, undisturbed linen cloths. Are you caught by the proofs? More importantly yet, are you living by those proofs? Are you living in the light of the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Are you living, believing in that Jesus Christ is alive, even though you are perhaps at this moment laboring under a heavy load of whatever it might be, of pain, of suffering, loss, difficulties? Are you entrusting yourself to this living Savior, Jesus Christ, even though you might find yourself going through a very difficult time in your life, even though you might have to experience persecution as well. John did. He continued to be faithful. It's all included, you see, in these words of our text. And he saw and believed. He saw and believed. And he kept on believing right to the very end of his life. Even while he was on the island of Patmos. And that was persecution for him too. Several years later, the Apostle Paul beautifully summarizes our response as believers in his first letter to 1 Timothy 4, verse 10. For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men. That means of all men who believe, especially those who believe. 